Welcome to the Creatives and Focus Podcast. Hi, I'm James Reed, fantasy author publishing under James D. Reed. The first volume of my epic 12 book fantasy series, Shadow of the Dragon, is available for purchase. Check out Foundation of Courage. Today, I'm joined by Astrid VJ. She's the author of Dragon's Daughter, The Word Mages Tell. How are you doing today, Astrid? I'm doing great, thank you. And how are you, James? Oh, yeah, no, I'm doing fine. Just a lazy Monday for me. <laughs> well, that's great. It was nothing, nothing at all lazy about my day today. But my son had a great first day of his vacation. <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, uh, he, he did the lazy. I did not get lazy. <laughs> so what what vacation is going on? Is he in like um, school age? Yes, he's uh, for in first grade, and in Sweden they actually get a vacation in February, which is called the sport vacation. But it's technically so that those people who want to go skiing can take it <laughs> skiing. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. I'm like I'm like who has like a like a, you know we have like in the states we have like. You know, the the Christmas vacation, right? Yeah. Like, and then they don't have one until, like, spring, so, like, late March, I think, or early April, you know, for um, the spring break. Like for Easter, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I don't know. Th- that's what I'm used to. That's what I'm used to. They didn't do it when I was a kid. <laughs> like, we didn't have spring break when I was a kid. We had just really long Christmas breaks. Great. But yeah. then they started, They apparently they, they cut off a week off the Christmas break and threw in, like, the spring break, like they do with colleges, I guess. Right. So, yeah, I, I I grew up in South Africa, so my my breaks were very different from the way they are here. So I I kind of find it amusing how how things work out here in Sweden. <laughs> yeah, I mean South Africa. So um, you you have like the opposite summer winter, but like is the South Africa fairly like uh like consistent climate, or does that really do have like seasons? It has rain and dry season. Okay. Yeah. It, it does have a tendency towards four seasons. So there's some regions of the country where you'll you'll definitely get like autumn leaves and and loads of flowers in the spring. But on the whole, it's easier to divide it into two. Is that closer towards like a uh, like the Cape? Yeah, it's, it's sort of monsoonal in, in yeah. more ways. You know, it's a, the reason why it doesn't actually have monsoon weather is because a large part of the country is actually elevated really high on a plateau. Oh, okay. That's the only reason why. If it was flat, <laughs> we'd have a monsoon weather. We'd have monsoon weather, yeah. No, I got that. It's like I live I live in the Pacific Northwest, and we're right. like my state's very famous for our rain, but only like a third of the state gets rain. Okay. Because of our mountains that cause yeah. all the rain to fall on our third of the state, and then the other yes. two thirds of the state is a desert. So like we have a we have a rainforest and a desert all within like a two hour drive of each other. Exactly, and, and South Africa has a lot of that. Okay. It's very contrasting um, yeah. geographies. But now you're up in uh, Sweden. <laughs> so you yeah, went to a crazy. place with no winter to a place with lots of winter. Well, don't don't think that South Africa doesn't have winter. At okay. 1,500 uh, meters above sea level, yeah. it gets cold. <laughs> yeah, I, get that. I mean, everywhere it gets cold. cold. You get, there's, there's snow on the equator on the high mountains, yeah. yeah. But sure, it doesn't it doesn't actually snow. You know, you you can count the the intervals of snow in lifetimes. It has snowed in my hometown 
town twice in my mom's lifetime, for example. <laughs> that's not quite us. We're like, we get a, like, five minutes of snow. Right. A winter, and then one winter we'll just get horrible snow. Right. Uh, and by horrible, I mean we get two inches. That's horrible where I live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. It's kind of weird for me because my birthday is in February. So then my entire childhood, it was my birthday was in the summer. And so it was my 30th birthday, actually, where it was the first time I got snow on my birthday here in Sweden. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's kind of it has been quite a change. But I'm I'm south. Um, I'm on the southernmost region of Sweden. So we don't actually get that much snow. It's, it's sort of more like Central Europe in okay, terms okay. of climate. So and yeah, the places with mountains get more snow than we do here. Uh, so you're kind of, I guess, near like um, Denmark? Yes. I'm like I'm picturing like Scandinavia in my head. I'm like, okay, so that would put you down. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. There's a bridge. There's a yeah. bridge. Um, Across all those little islands and stuff. That well, it essentially it, it connects this part of Sweden to Copenhagen. Okay. Yeah. And my the nearest airport is actually in Copenhagen. I've had a I've, I've done that. Well, it wasn't like in the the nearest. I used to live in New Mexico, and the nearest airport was in Texas. Right. And so it was like a three hour drive through boring desert. Like I mean I don't know. It's you know it's just like nothing but desert. Just like I guess oh. nothing but grassland. But at least there's grass instead of yes. sagebrush. But yeah, that's that's what it's like to uh, get to El Paso. Yeah, all right. But we're not here to talk about fun places in the world to live. We're here to talk about writing books. And um, so Astrid, how long have you wanted to be an author? So like, how did that all happen? Well, the first uh, had had to put this. The first drop in the ocean happened when I was reading a nonfiction book back when I was 12 and I had this idea and it just unleashed the gates and I I just wrote and wrote and wrote and had more story ideas and more story ideas and it just never dried up but it, during my teens I actually settled myself with this idea that it wasn't worth pursuing a career as an author because I, I believed that it wasn't going to make ends meet and so I actually ended up studying psychology at yeah, university. I, and then, well, the thing was, I didn't want to let go of the writing. So I did a dual, uh, two, two majors uh, okay. in social sciences. So I had the, the, the psychology and then English literature as my two majors. And that meant I had to take a whole bunch of electives to kind of patch up my credits yeah. Which ended up with a, you know, just randomly on orientation week, I took social anthropology. You know, I, I saw the lecturer give her first lecture and I was like, yeah, this sounds cool. I'll take a look at this and ended up acing anthropology. And just I just kept going with it. I didn't drop it, even though it was supposed to be an elective. So I actually I have a master's in anthropology now. <laughs> yeah, that kind of sounded like my brother. He went to college. I think he was originally going to get a doctorate in like ministry. Right. And then it became clinical psychology. And now he is a lawyer. Wow. So he got his master's and he went to law school. That's crazy. It's it's yeah. amazing how how much we learn about ourselves while studying. And you can just take this complete turn and do something entirely different that yeah. you're passionate about. So yeah. Yeah, I mean I, I've always wanted to be an author like you, but like I 
initially went to school for um, initially for mechanical drafting with the intention maybe to transfer that two-year degree towards um, like four-year like master's in engineering yeah. kind of was the idea but just to start out like get a, a two-year degree that you could get a job with right right and, and um and a skill that's very in demand because not a lot of people get into it right. um just of course the drawing of blueprints <laughs> is what it is so you just have to you have to you have to have some skills you got to be good at like 3d spatial awareness and you know like because you got to like take isometric blowouts of parts and picture how they are supposed to look you know so as you design them and stuff and i always liked it but i also wanted to be an author (laughs) (laughs) which is which i find is the three the 3d spatial stuff is really good for like picturing like um fighting and stuff in my Uh, yeah i can imagine it it's it's a useful skill yeah yeah it's uh it's weird that it's uh you know some people can't do it some people can't you just how your brain works which is always a a fascinating thing Uh, i think i think authors should really you know, it's like psychology, anthropology, uh, history. These are all things authors should study, and whether formally or informally. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I definitely find that there's so much overlap. It was quite amusing. In one of my anthropology classes, a lecturer asked us all, "What other subjects are we taking?" Because at the time, that anthropology course, it was impossible to just take it on its own. Yeah. And so everyone had at least other subjects, if not double majors. And when I mentioned English literature, she was like, yeah, well, I mean, there you go. That's, you know, anthropology of the past. <laughs> you know, you're getting a snapshot of what the society looked like at the time the author wrote the book. And that's it's it's very true that they're very malleable. I yeah. use the psychology, the stuff I learned in psychology, I use all the time with my characterization. Yeah, and the anthropology informs my world building. I, I like I actually a lot of people have commented on my world building that it's sort of minimalist, but it flows really well. And they actually get this really big picture, even though I don't spend time describing stuff. Right. And that's because I actually use an anthropological tool called um, thick description, which is all about, you know, conveying the cultural information through a brief description of what's happening. Yeah, no, that's a uh, world building's fun. It I like is. doing my world building and I like to not overwhelm my readers, but I like to just give them a sense of cultures. And I really like to, to make sure I have different cultures and then make them clash. I love making different mm-hmm. cultures clash. I love yes. characters with different worldviews. And then they look at each other and go like, man, that's really weird. You believe it on the other guys like, really? Cause it's weird that you don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly that. But yeah, no, like literature, like sociology, anthropology, psychology, these are all just trying to understand humans, right? And that's what writing is, you know, discovering yourself, discovering other people, exploring what it is to be human, unless you're making a Transformers film or something, but, you know. <laughs> and even then, you might even be surprised. Then, yeah, even then, <laughs> things slip in just because, you know, that's just how they are, but yeah. So that led you to uh, the novel that you, you know, you shared with me, Dragon's Daughter. Um, so let's talk a bit about that. Just from the blurb, you know, I see life is hard in this city called um, Akio. Am I saying that right? It's it's an acceptable version. Go with it. <laughs> okay. And uh, Ferdinanda, she knows this better than anyone that it's a it's a hard place to live. So uh, tell us about Ferdinanda and what her story is and what makes it such a great read. Right. Fernanda is a half-elf orphan 
living in a human city where she stands out. But because she's a half-elf and also an orphan that doesn't have anyone to take care of her, she's essentially a street urchin. And she lives off, you know, whatever she can get through snatch and grab, uh, pickpocketing and the like. And she has this situation that she she's living alone at, the, at this time. But, you know, a few years ago, she was kind of taught the ropes by another street urchin who kind of helped her out. But then he became too big for the location, their sanctuary, essentially. And had to leave. And so she's been alone since then. And now she gets into the situation. She's 12 going on 13. She's getting too big. People are noticing her because she's so different. Um, She has very iconic features that make her rememberable. And so then now the police are after her because they notice her when she's in the market and they know she's a thief. And so this is how the story begins with essentially with her running from the market, trying to get away from the police or the constables, as we call them. And just, you know, the the difficulties of getting by in this city where she lives, but where she's so different that she sticks out like a sore thumb. And I guess why is it so compelling and, you know, why is it fun to read? Well, it's really short. It's under 90 pages and it's a fast paced um, adventure that's incorporating a lot of transformation because at the same time as I took the steps to publish my books four years ago, I also did a um, a certification in life, life coaching. And I've kind of realized that my niche with all my writing, even though I write across a whole range of subgenres of fantasy, is that all all the time I'm looking at the transformative elements of what is it that we humans are capable of doing? What, how do we overcome adversity? How, how do we achieve success? And that's kind of what I do with, through my characters. And Fernanda's journey is very much uh, dedicated to the principle of the power of intuition because it's her whole story is about intuitive decisions, intuitive nudges, you know, that nudge that you sometimes get. Well, no, don't take this train, wait for the next, or this bus, take the next one. And then it turns out that like 30 seconds after the bus, you've waited half an hour for, (laughs) there's another one and it's empty. (laughs) So that kind of thing. That's what this, the underlying undercurrent for the story is. Okay. Yeah, no, I get that. I'm as an author, um, I've obviously had intuition like kick me in the butt before as I'm <laughs> writing, because I mean you know you you know you you think about a storyline and then you write it and I don't know you're like at least I don't know how it works for the authors but for me like I very much I feel like my brain like I plant seeds and then my subconscious starts connecting them as I write and builds on things that I never planned on but like I planted the seeds. Absolutely, and, I, I uh, totally connect with that. This story, for example, just had this really strange situation where I I had certain scenes really clear in my mind, but how they connect up was very vague. And I'd been thinking about it and thinking about it, and it wasn't going anywhere, and it would like it was just wasn't coming together. 
And then I realized that my missing link was that I'd been focusing on two characters very strongly, but there was this third character who kind of like features, but it suddenly became clear that he's actually a really important part of the story. And once I figured that out, it really came together very nicely. And it's become really, it's become so well-rounded. Everyone wants this. <laughs> a lot of my readers have actually asked me to write another story about this character to get his his story. Yeah, no, I've definitely uh, had that. I mean, that's why I have an entire like setting with multiple different series in it mm. because of my first short story I ever published. And everyone just really liked the magic system. And it was right. too good a magic system to waste on a short story. <laughs> right. <laughs> And uh, yeah, and so like it just built on that um, and used like a couple little seeds I planted to just make the world feel bigger for the short story of, you know, where I just like casually had like, oh, yeah, there's this other group of people and, you know, they're mm-hmm. kind of, you know, they're they're considered exotic to the to the locals, obviously, because, you know, they're you don't see many of them. And, yeah. you know, they come from the sea and they have different mores about things because, like I said, them in a very um, like it, the setting was very much um puritanical like england like uh right. victorian england victorian. right where everything is has cool. got to be prim and proper on the surface right and <laughs> and this culture was a more you know sexually liberated culture right. and uh so like you know they they would get rep, you know just reputation but i just had to just casually drop this in in the short story but i was able to build on that very much so with like in the actual series i set where like the sort of racial tension of like immigrants from this place being you know looked down on as you know different you know by the locals who don't like the fact they're immigrating <laughs> into their city you know because yeah. there's a lot of poverty and uh, it's it's during like this sort of magical industrial revolution so um the whole population dynamic is shifting from like the country going from an agrarian you know economy right. to a, a technology you know to a you know to the industrial economy right. so it's causing fast like labor issues it's causing food shortages is like you know, like there's a drought, so farmers are coming into the city for work, and so it's all sorts of stuff to set this novel in or the series in, and uh, it was a lot of fun to write, <laughs> all because I had this throwaway line in a short story. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's this this is I guess it's how, how things work out, right? You, you know, I had a two entirely unconnected story ideas that I ended up managing to bake into. A single world and have essentially turned into one is the history and the other one is the contemporary situation <laughs> so uh, people can can read my fairy tale retellings for example and get sort of the more historical perspective that l- have small links to my futuristic fantasy series and then the 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 tales that um, dragon's daughter is part of are actually the sort of fables or fairy tales that um, the storyteller who is my lead character in the futuristic fantasy series tells. And so all of these tales are mentioned in the main series, but I've kind of pulled them out into their own sub-series of standalone novellas just to allow a little bit more scope for each story rather than having them nested short stories within the main novel which was the original plan it was just doing a thousand and one nights style story just became too big a project it made more sense to 
focus on the storyteller, get her story out, and then kind of have the the short stories that she tells as a separate series. Yeah. It's always fun. You know, I don't know. Uh, short stories are sometimes how I do world building. Um, cause like they force me, like I sometimes get lazy and don't want to do it because as much as I love it, it's also work. Yeah. But like, you know, so sometimes I, I develop, I, especially in this one series where there's like, where I have a setting that's really designed that you can have just a lot of local stories across the world, which is right. like a sort of consistent magic system mm-hmm. and like a like consistent world. But like, you know, it's not like the stakes are usually are very local stakes for the most part. Right. Um, I'm building towards something with the series, setting that'll be global. But at the moment, like, so I can set all these stories in it. So sometimes I just write short stories, sort of develop different, like, cultures and stuff. Okay. Or at least I used to. I don't have time to write short stories anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I keep wanting to, but, like, uh, just, I don't know. All my time got eaten up by other stuff. But I, I would like to go back to writing short stories. They're very fun because you got to be very, gotta be very focused. Yes. You know, get in, get out, you know. Absolutely. There are there are a lot of fun. I I write short stories as well. I, I it's kind of funny because I as a child or even in my youth I I did not like short story collections at all. <laughs> it's like, it's I just, still don't like them. I loved. I absolutely loved the the bigger the novel the better. Right. The longer I'm with it you. took me to read the better I'm because with you. the longer I could immerse myself in the story and the world the happier I was. But now I you know being a mom working you know it's kind of i don't have time to read yeah no and I'm, so then the shorter the better <laughs> yeah i read so a lot I of um, write short stuff myself i read a lot of trashy japanese light novels which are all like 130 pages you know yeah. they're like very short get in get out and then um yeah <laughs> and then i have these like big books and i'm like that book's going to take me like two weeks three weeks to read yeah. i could read five books in that time I could read five of these trashy Japanese light novels in that time, and I feel yeah. like I'm accomplishing something. So yeah, no, I get that. But uh, yeah, no, um, yeah, no, I like I like writing short stories; they're fun. So you got uh, you got Dragon Daughter. You got anything else that's coming out recent uh, in the near future? Yes, I do. Two short stories, incidentally, and then a novel. So the novel is my next fairy tale retelling, which is the Tinderbox. It's one of Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tales. And so just a, an aside, I'm actually specializing in the retelling of lesser known fairy tales. That's definitely uh, a lesser have, known one. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, Hans Christian Andersen's most famous one is the Snow Queen. And okay. the Tinderbox is known, but it is, as as you say, it's it's one of the lesser known ones. Right. And Snow it's, Queen's what, what Frozen's based off, right? Well, Frozen is a bastardization of, but I yes. Okay. I got that. That's fine. That's, that's fair to say. Uh, and yes, of course, The Little Mermaid is the other really famous one that he wrote, uh, to the point where Copenhagen actually has a statue of The Little Mermaid in their bay, because, yeah. you know, that's you know, the legacy that they have. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, so the the my Tinderbox retelling, the original fairy tale is about a soldier who comes across a magical grotto. He's actually led there by a witch uh, that contains three magical dogs and quantities of treasure you cannot begin to imagine. And the thing that the witch wants is a tinderbox. But in the process of 
you know, getting the treasure up out of the hollow where it's kept, out of, out of the, the cave, uh, you know, Cave of Wonders style. He ends up ki- killing the witch. Some translations of it make it more into it was sort of accidental. Others like that it was with intent. So I'm not. It's, it's sort of up to interpretation, I guess. Uh, and then he find realizes that the tinderbox actually controls the dogs and that they can then bring you treasure. And so he has his adventure and. Eventually, there's a princess that gets involved, and she's his prize at the end of the story type. That's the okay. general gist of it. And that's very Hans Christian Andersen. He loves having, you know, these little moral stories with the, you know, the reward at the end of the story. Uh, you know, I mean, because like the princess, right? That's the classic, like yeah. the dragon kidnapped the princess. Yes. But so I, I watched this guy who does videos on like, like the origins of mythology. And like he traced like the origin, like the the origin, like the different ways the dragon myth permeates through culture, right. especially the Indo-European one, which is of course where the kidnapped princess comes from. Yes. But when you go back far enough, you find out it was actually cattle yes. that was taken by the dragon. And because you know the the word for uh, cow really just meant female animal in um <laughs> in, in yes. like in that. And so when it got to like more like when it got out of the pastoral stage, they took that female animal and like, well, cows really aren't that important, but female animal, that's like a, we use it as a slang for women. And suddenly it's like a precious daughter or a princess yes. that gets taken yes. when it originally, exactly. this is a legend that came out of like cattle thieving from rival tribes. And, you know, you're some tribe stole your cattle and you have to go out and get yeah. your cows back. That's how it started. <laughs> it is funny how that happens. Well, yeah. so the point of my retelling is I'm switching things around. And yes, I am doing chapters on the original tale, including the the soldier and his whole journey. But I'm alternating with the princess's point of view. And it is about her. And so it, I, it, I'm trying to answer my own question about the fact that because the princess was locked in a tower because there was a prophecy about her marrying a common soldier and her parents had a problem with that. And so this is like that's what I want to look at is well what what does that do to a person to be locked up in a tower? Fair enough. <laughs> because their parents are terrified of a prophecy coming true. Yeah, no, it's like um parents are like, Oh, there's a prophecy. Well, we're gonna just lock our daughter away forever. That's yeah. That's a lot of European myths on that trope. It is. It is. But I thought that I'd like to look at that and then obviously build it into my existing world. Yeah, no, I guess it's the... Um, that's the fun part. Yeah, no. Making it fit together. <laughs> I guess it's a cautionary tale to parents, like, don't be overprotective of your children because it's not good to lock them in towers. And frankly, you know, she's going to run off with a common soldier anyways. It's so, absolutely. Well, it's it's you know, doing this that led to that outcome. Right, exactly. I, I'm know? seeing that, yeah. Like, if you, if you keep your child sheltered, then she's going to run off with the bad boy. You know, you can count on it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Well, that sounds like a, a really fun uh, short story. Um, that one is actually not, that one's going to be a full novel. Oh, a full novel. It's, it's coming out in May, and then in between, I have a short story releasing in the Twice Upon a Name charity collection, which is raising funds for literacy um, programs around the world. Okay. 
my short story in Twice Upon a Name is called Star Dancer, and it's about two young men from a Polynesian-style culture. Okay. Who, one who who's paraplegic and is being given an opportunity to achieve something great through magic. And his other half, who can be interpreted as a friend or brother or lover, depending on who you are and how you want to see it, doesn't believe that this is possible and wants to protect Namid from the potential failure or you know the crushing blow that might occur if he should fail at what he wants to achieve and so it was very much playing with that well we have the potential to transform but there are often things holding us back and one of the worst situations of being held back is through the people who love us and that's kind of what i wanted to explore in in that short story yeah i uh i mean i broke my heroes back once put him in a wheelchair, like paralyzed him from the waist down. Yeah. And then I had the, the villain come up and say, I can fix you. <laughs> Good one. Nice one. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote an entire series because that was an idea I had. And I'm like, man, I have to write like a couple books before yeah. I get to doing that to my guy and put him into that, you know, is he going to make the deal with the devil or not <laughs> to get back, you know, to make him feel like, you know, because he lost all his sense of identity and yeah. self-worth. Uh, but isn't that how the best ideas come about? You have an idea, and then it just grows and grows and grows and becomes like, yeah, bigger. It's like this is an idea that you can't just like start with. You have to yeah. you have to show this character before, and so that when they're given the choice, like it's a you know you can see that you know you can really feel the temptation. Yeah. Well, here's here's one of mine. <laughs> yeah. When I first moved to Sweden, I decided to read a history book about Swedish history. And I, it just so happened that a you know high-profile Swedish journalist had just released a you know more popular book about Swedish history and particularly about the royal family. And I was you know it was a cool book, very well written, easy to read. And there was just this one-liner about one of the Swedish kings who actually ended up in, uh, as a Polish king. because So there were three sons, and one was a Swedish king, and the other one became the Polish king. And one of his descendants had over 400 bastards. That's it. That's, you know, that's just this random aside about this random Polish king of Swedish descent. <laughs> and I was like, can you imagine if, you know, I'm... there was a Polish descendant now of that king who came back to Sweden and was now like, well, right to rule, you know, return of the king type type story. I'm, I'm just thinking more like, what did this guy do besides? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite. There's also that question. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, that might be a really good line to throw in. Um, so, yeah, I'm actually writing an urban fantasy set in Sweden where the Vasa line of kings has certain magical powers. Okay. And are supported by uh, paranormal creatures because the Swedish um, the Swedish noble houses have the most insane names and really cool uh, heraldry. So you know, there's one one family that's called Night and Day, and they have you know it's the stars and the sun on their shield. And to me, it's like they have to be vampires. I mean, come on. <laughs> 
<laughs> and and there's like the lion the lion head family so you know they're lion shifters eh? and i just kept looking and you know like there's a bear family and a, the, the wolves technically um there was a family with a wolf on their on their shield that lost their estate and and sort of were their their noble title was removed back in the 17th century and I'm like, yeah, that could work because I mean, you know, werewolves have a bad rep, right? So they'd go underground. And that's fair. <laughs> I'm having I mean, a lot of fun. I'm having a lot of fun with this story. You know, the only the only Swedish king I know is uh, Dolphus Gustav, who was who fought in the in the what was it the the Thirty Year War? Yes. Yeah, that's the only one I know. And just because like he was featured in, uh, in I think Flynn's book. Where like right. a random town in America just gets transported back in time into the middle of the Thirty Year War, and they run into him uh, right as he was like on the battlefield because he was a uh, you know he went to go fight for on the the Protestant side. Yes, exactly. And, um, they were Protestants, yeah. And he, you know he he's kind of the guy that started developing like combined arms tactics and and uh, he yes. couldn't wear his armor because he got shot in the neck and he had a like a bullet stuck in his neck so he couldn't neck. wear his like metal his cuirass mm-hmm. and that's what got him killed. <laughs> Yes. He just was wearing leather armor. Yeah, that's that's it. That's that's my knowledge of Swedish kings. <laughs> well, his his ancestor actually managed to get Sweden to separate from Denmark oh, because okay. it was under Danish rule. And 500 years ago, uh, there was a bit of an uprising, and then the Danish king essentially executed everyone who was in any way remotely against him. You know, he 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 did the classic case of right. I'll invite you to a meal, a conciliatory banquet, and we'll all be friends. And then instead of them all being friends, he had them all dragged off and beheaded. Yeah, yeah, that always works out well because you it forget does. they have you forget they have like relatives. Yes, well, that so don't this like this. Thing here. The, the plan the plan was to kill off everyone, but this guy kind of fell through the cracks. He clearly listened to his intuition and said hell no i'm not going to that party <laughs> i mean i'll give you the king that's like if you're going to you know if you're going to start executing your enemies you really got to make sure you get like their Everyone. kids too or yeah. it, you're going to regret that yeah and so so the danish king was was you know you know kept his human side going and left allowed the women to live and kept them prisoner in denmark and so this young guy gustav you know he was I think it was 17 or 18. He was he was young. He might yeah. have been in his early 20s. He might have actually I think he may have been 24. But nevertheless, he was young. His entire family was murdered and he was, you know, they were out hunting for him. So he fled and just managed to convince some, you know, peasants out in the sticks somewhere that this wasn't working. He thought he'd failed and he actually he was leaving the country, but then they they kind of caught up with him and brought him back. And he led a revolution and was successful and became king. And yeah, next year, I think next year is the 500th anniversary of him being crowned king of Sweden. So it's kind of, it's interesting because the Swedes, like, they could not care less about their history. <laughs> like, they do not care about these things. And I find it absolutely fascinating that the first king of Sweden was a refugee. That's kind of cool. Yeah, no, it's um. I mean, you go back, like, yeah, there's a lot of crazy, fun history stuff. Yeah, but uh, well, it has been really great chatting with you, Astrid. 
thank you for having me. It's been a great opportunity. It has. Um, if you want to just let uh, everyone know where they can like connect with you on social media. Yes, absolutely. I'm most active on Instagram, where I have that hash or the sorry the handle astrid.v.j underscore author underscore official and that's where people can easily connect up and find out more about my book projects but also about what i'm reading and other authors i like to support awesome you reading anything interesting projects (laughs) stuff yeah i'm actually reading a romance novel uh, by Susan Stradiotto called The Gold- Golden Orchid. And it's it's really great. I love her works. She's writes both fantasy and contemporary romance. Uh, and she even has a paranormal romance, I think. She, you know, she's wide. She, she writes lots of different genres. And she's really great. I like her work. Awesome. Well, it has been really great chatting with you. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, you have yourself a great day. Thank you, you too. This has been Creatives in Focus. You can follow my books on Amazon under JMD Read, or join my readers group, Fantastic Worlds of the Imagination, on Facebook to keep up with news and releases.